On this week's Texas Tribune TribCast, we'll talk about whenever the heck Beto O'Rourke's going to announce his next move, the admission scandal facing colleges across the country, including UT Austin, and Border Hustle, a big Tribune collaboration with Time Magazine. But before we do, I'd like to thank today's TribCast sponsors. The Texas Association of School Boards. Public schools are the right choice for Texas. Support your local schools today at texansforstrongpublicschools.org. And CompTIA. Discover how an all-inclusive CompTIA membership can help give you eyes, ears, and a voice at the state, federal, and international levels. Visit comptia.org slash PSA for more. Do I have to talk you in your head? Do we have to make sense of it? Hello, this is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, March 13th with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by breaking news editor Matthew Watkins. Hello. Hello. Investigative reporter Jay Root. I'm back. The golden voice warbler is back. And our political reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, as always, we are going to be taking your questions in real time on Twitter, apparently, because FaceTime is down. Uh, Facebook is oh. down. FaceTime is probably up. Facebook is down. Patrick the whole seems thing? Apparently. Just, can FaceTime go down? Uh, I don't know if FaceTime can. Facebook? I, I didn't know Facebook could. on your Wi-Fi could. connection. Yeah. Anyway, if you are tweeting at us, you can do it using the hashtag Tribcast. Uh, okay, Patrick, let's start with you. When the hell is Beto O'Rourke going to announce for president so we can stop talking about this every week on the TribCast? Very soon. Uh, any day, any hour, any minute, any it could second. Be, it could be during <laughs> this podcast. Exactly. Um, what we do know for sure is that some details are coming out that he is uh, definitely heading to Iowa over the course of the next few days. It looks like he could be there. He's expected to campaign there. Um, either as a declared candidate or not as a declared candidate, as early as Thursday afternoon. He has, um, there's some public information indicating that he's going to be making kind of a swing through eastern Iowa. Um, expected to get there Thursday afternoon and wrap up Saturday night. So um, he's not going to announce in Iowa. So shouldn't he announce like right now before he goes? Hint, sure, hint. I'm not advising him, but <laughs> well, where, where is he going to announce? Uh, well, right, that's the question. I mean, sure. and, and on what for, what platform is he going to announce? I mean, it, it seems like if he was going to do some, like, public rally, we would have known about it by now, right? Right, exactly. I, I, mean, I wouldn't be surprised, given how he ran his Senate campaign and in some ways how he's run his previous campaigns, that this would just be that he would announce this by just taking to social media in some in some way and just saying, hey, I'm running. Oh, shit, if um, Facebook is down, right. He might be trying to do it right plan. now. Or if he's trying to FaceTime yeah. us. <laughs> maybe that's what brought Facebook down. Yeah. I know, maybe uh, so. Yeah. Um, oh my so gosh. I wouldn't be, I think a lot of people would not be surprised if he just hopped on Facebook Live or sent out uh, a tweet, a text, an email. Uh, clearly, those are his preferred modes of communication, even more so than other candidates in this kind a of social A medium post. And, and didn't his Senate digital. campaign send out a message saying, like, give us your phone your number so you make sure you... Right. right. Not only has his campaign been emailing supporters, you know, saying, give us your information so you're the first to know. They've also, uh, in the course of the past couple of days, gone up with uh, hundreds of Facebook ads with the same message trying to collect people's uh, information, uh, you know, under the promise of letting them be the first to know, uh, which was notable in that it was the first time his campaign has paid for Facebook ads since the Senate race. Literally, you go back and you look at the last time he paid for ads. It was on election day. Like, hey, hey, turn out on election day. So clearly things are ramping up. And I think the sense is that an, an announcement is imminent, um, whether, you know, it's before this Iowa trip, during, after, I think that's still a little bit up in the air, but uh, things are definitely afoot. So is there any question at all at this point that he's running? I don't think so. I think people at this point would be uh, shocked 
if uh, he's not running. <laughs> this would be like Just the most highly anticipated. <laughs> <laughs> Let me text you to tell you, you know what? Never mind. Right. I'm this is a new chapter in help. milking, milking. God, this I know, right. isn't it? Yeah. Endless. Uh, so, okay, so he's going to Iowa, and what is he doing in Iowa? He's is he's he's going to be block walking for who? Sure. So the, the the first event that was kind of made public uh, just for all of us to see was that he's going to be uh, doing some block walking and door knocking for a Democratic candidate in a state Senate special election there in Iowa, in northeastern Iowa. Uh, the candidate's name is Eric Giddens. And, um, you know, this special election, I think, is next week. And O'Rourke is not by far not the only 2020 name who's come to this guy's aid. Mm -hmm. um, plenty of other 2020 candidates um, are either going to be campaigning for him this weekend or in the coming days have, you know, recorded videos for him just like O'Rourke did. And so, um, you know, in, cho in choosing to help out this candidate, O'Rourke is not doing anything particularly <laughs> unique. Um, you know, but this happens all the time in, in, in Iowa where you have, you know, these you know, when you have special elections or state legislative races that coincide with the, the presidential cycle, the candidates all kind of swarm these races and, and try to help out because it's, you know, it's a, it's a way to, to build local political connections and some goodwill with the local Democrats. And correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, how often did Beto O'Rourke do that for Texas candidates? Yeah, not, obviously, you know, his in his Senate race, he appeared at some events with other candidates, uh, but he did not go out of his way often to help other candidates, whether it was other statewide candidates, whether it was down ballot candidates. Now, of course, those candidates were, I'm sure, ultimately very grateful for how strong of a race he ran at the top mm -hmm. of the ticket, and I'm sure he had some impact on their own races. Um, but you didn't see him campaign for a lot of down ballot candidates, actively campaign for a lot of down ballot candidates during the um, the uh, the Senate race last year in Texas, and so. You know, it was actually a little, you know, watching him, the video where he, he recorded in support of the state Senate candidate in Iowa is actually kind of a, like, a bit of a jarring experience to mm -hmm. see him, like, actively promoting another candidate. Someone else, right. Down ballot, because we just didn't see it a lot during the Senate race. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, it, and I guess maybe what's most interesting about it for me is that it's, again, if we're talking about Beto potentially running a non-traditional campaign, like, this is a super traditional move. Absolutely. I mean, just going to Iowa is a super, super traditional move. Um, and so, you know, I think, and, and going to Eastern Iowa too, in some ways, it's also a pretty traditional move for a Democratic candidate. A pretty um, traditional move for Patrick Svitek, who's going right. to be breaking out his winter coat again. Um, what kind of splash did Beto make at South by Southwest? He, was, he wasn't part of the sort of presidential track of people who came and spoke here, his, but he did have a documentary um, air. Right. I, I didn't go. I wasn't there. Um, but based on uh, our reporter who was there and other folks who were there, I mean, it seemed like he continued to be pretty tight-lipped about the presidential mm -hmm. campaign. And it seemed like um, this uh, he had agreed to uh, appear at this documentary <laughs> screening before he knew that he'd be planning a, before he knew for sure that he'd be planning a presidential campaign announcement. And so it seemed like kind of, there were kind of clashing timelines there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was in the audience and it was strange, mostly because the audience did not ask nearly enough hard questions, in my uh, <laughs> opinion. Documentary audiences don't often. Yeah. But I did think, I mean, what was most compelling for me watching this documentary was seeing Beto. Um, pissed off. <laughs> like we don't really, we get to see always sort of the happy, positive Beto. And it was really interesting. These filmmakers got pretty good access to see him like, you know, behind the scenes when he felt ill-prepared. It was generally like when he felt like he wasn't properly prepared for an event or didn't know the people who were going to be in the audience or didn't know, you know, the issues that were important to them that he would like really get, you know, pretty fiery, a little bit snippy, a little bit condescending with his staff, which I think you expect of anybody. And these are not like, uh, you know, this, but I, I do think it was really compelling to see see him in sort of that different light. 
So. Yeah, and I think it was, you know, for those of us who watched the Senate race, it was definitely a side of him that you didn't see. Um, not that he needs any more praise from the media, but, I mean, when, he, when you saw him running for Senate, it, you know, he at times made it look kind of effortless in terms of how he was mm -hmm. able to speak off the cuff and, and, and improvise. And so I think that was definitely a side you did not see a lot during the Senate race. I heard Juliana Castro did not make a huge splash at South by Southwest. I think somebody told me that the audience was, like, relatively lackluster. There weren't even that many people in the crowd. And I think that's not, like, a great, <laughs> a great sign if you're in Austin, Texas. But maybe the South by He, he did walk out of it with a big headline, though, in terms of uh, he made some, some comments criticizing Bernie Sanders kind of from the left on mm -hmm. this issue of reparations in the, in the Democratic primary. So a little, little bit of little schism there. Little news out of South by Southwest. Yeah. Yep. All right. Sounds good. Well, moving on. Um, okay. So, Jay, I have to know you are the only one of us with college-age children. Did you pay to get your kids into, to, uh, <laughs> into college? I paid a lot of tuition. In <laughs> fact, I'm so glad Jim Bertuno from the AP once said it was like it's like uh, you know buying a car and pushing it off a cliff every year. That's <laughs> yeah. exactly the way I feel. It was like ten thousand dollars per kid just the tuition. Yeah. So I paid a lot of money in tuition. But no, you know what we did, and I wonder why some more people don't do this. Ben, my son Ben, went to ACC because he did not. My 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 daughter Louise got in. She was in the top four percent of her class. She got in no problem. My son was just out of where you had to be, and but he went to ACC and then transferred in. So. No. no bribery. That's, no one way to do it. I didn't yeah, that, bribe. Yes, that's the, eth the ethical, honorable way to do it. All right, Matthew, tell us, tell our listeners what uh, we are talking about. Take us through this giant FBI investigation and how uh, University of Texas plays a role. Sure. Well, the news broke yesterday that a massive college admissions fraud scheme was busted up by federal authorities. Um, basically, I'll, I'll go with the what the scheme was and then go with the UT angle after that. The, the scheme was basically... Uh, rich people, uh, including actresses and, uh, you know, what investment bank, uh, Lawyer, top lawyers, lawyers yeah, yeah. Right. And, and a non Greg Abbott, Greg Abbott. Oh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Ooh, I didn't even notice yeah, that. There's a person named Greg Abbott, Patrick but not the governor. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, basically what they were doing was, uh, for kids who were having trouble getting into school, they were having these kids pretend to be athletes or basically have coaches at these schools pretend that these kids were athletes in order for them to get kind of through the side door, which allows, you know, student athletes who are being recruited for whatever team to get in with kind of lesser academic, academic yeah, standards right. than the rest of the universities. I, I guess the kids weren't actually pretending. Most of them, it seems like, didn't even know that their parents were doing this. Yeah, this is what's most horrifying is like the parents didn't even trust their own kids. It's yeah. like the, the judgment on the part of the parents. Anyway, disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so this was happening at elite universities across the country, and it was happening at the University of Texas, where... Which apparently is an elite university. Yeah, it was kind of like, there were some people on Twitter kind of bragging, like, you know, I went to A&M, and people being like, you know, oh yeah, no one was paying to get into A&M, you know. That's that we thing. know of. That we know of, that's true. Um, but anyway, so what was happening was the uh, men's tennis coach, Michael Center, um, allegedly took a $100,000 bribe to basically flag a student who was not a tennis player and saying, you know, essentially, we're recruiting this student to play tennis here. So, and what that does is then changes kind of the admission standards is basically allows the student to get in as a recruited athlete and then the kid doesn't end up playing on the tennis team. It's, it's just kind of this backdoor uh, attempt. So he is, you know, facing, you know, federal charges for this um, and was arraigned in, in court yesterday. And so there's also a, a Houston connection, right? I mean, it seems like some of these 
it's, it's, it wasn't just sports. Like in some cases, this there were kids being sort of set up to take tests with proctors who would then like change the results, right? Is that I thought that was the one of the most interesting aspects of this investigation that's kind of gotten slightly lost because of the high profile actors and actresses that are, that are involved, right? I mean, what was a Houston teacher that was coaching kids and, and, and helping, was he falsifying results or was it coaching them in a way or getting special treatment when they took the test? That's, I, I, I don't know the exact details of what the person was doing in order to help the kids get better scores, but basically the idea was pay us money, go send your kid to this proctor in Houston, and right. as a result of that, your kid will get the SAT score. And, and the proctor, meaning the person who's actually administering, over, administering the, the test. I mean, it's like, a, wow. To me, what's, what's even more horrifying about it is that they're taking advantage of the disability access system in the United States. So basically what these, these uh, parents would do is they would have to like get documents alleging that their kids had a learning disability so that they could take these tests untimed and, and often you know outside of school hours. So parents would take their kids They'd lie to their kids and basically say, you know what, honey, I don't think that you should have to spend all these extra hours, you know, missing class to take these tests. So, you know what? And we happen to be going to L.A. next weekend. Why don't over the weekend, why don't you take the test in L.A. while we're in L.A.? And then they would set up the kid in an environment, you know, where they'd have basically a hall pass to take a, a disability test. They'd have unlimited time and the person overseeing it was being paid under the table to, like, change their results and make them. And right, like Matthew said, like a lot of these kids, most of these kids, it sounds like, did had no idea this was going on. So these parents, I mean, it's it is astonishing on so many levels. It, it's amazing how much money they paid because uh, honestly, I mean, financially, it just doesn't work out. Because if you add up how much it costs to put your kids to have housing for your kids, and then you add a hundred thousand dollar bribe on top of or that, or a five hundred thousand dollar bribe in the case of Lori Laughlin from uh, Full House. <laughs> like, is, is a degree, would, would, you know, would you make that much money back to actually justify the degree, or is it all just the prestige of being from that college? It's, it's absolutely yeah. the prestige. And, yeah. you know, these parents wanting to be able to say their kids got into a certain school or not wanting their kids to be disappointed if they didn't get in. I mean, it's the whole thing is, but it's amazing to me that UT plays into this, you know, at all. So what, what has been the, um, have there been political ramifications here? I know we saw the governor, I guess, spoke out about it this morning. Yeah, I mean, so far the re response from lawmakers in Texas has been, you know, this is troubling and we need to look into this and make sure that whatever loophole was being exploited is closed. Um, you know, I think right now one person from UT has been charged in this. Um, is there, there you, right now there's not any evidence that there were other people involved. Um, you know, I think the question that a lot of lawmakers have is, was this person acting alone and be able to kind of exploit the system on his own? Or is there something else here? Do, do we need to look, you know, either to see whether other people are involved or if there were flaws in our admission system that allowed this to happen? Mm -hmm. And obviously this is not the first time that admissions at UT have come under the microscope in recent memory, particularly not with a the only time with a political angle. I mean, Matthew, you've covered, you covered higher ed, obviously, before you were an editor. Talk a little bit about the, the history, particularly at UT admissions. It's, it's really interesting that this happened at UT, just given that there's been so much scrutiny over UT Austin's admissions in recent years in two different ways. You know, there were two 
the, the UT's admissions practices went to the Supreme Court twice in the last decade, um, in which one of the issues here was the process of allowing people in who maybe have lesser GPAs and SAT scores. You know, this was a whole big question. The UT, the, the, they were arguing over affirmative action and, and whether that was allowed, but a lot of that was in terms of like, should you be letting exceptions in to either diversify the student body or let in certain people? One of the arguments that UT was making here is like, we need a way to get students in who are football players or violin players who may not get in under the, what's your GPA, what's your SAT score uh, method. And then on the other hand, there was a comprehensive review done internally of the admissions processes in which uh, you know, a particular regent, Regent Wallace Hall, had raised questions about people with connections, big donors, uh, lawmakers' kids, or people connected to lawmakers, whether they were kind of bending the rules in order to allow those students in. The university system found that there were a few dozen students that were, had, you know, I believe it was below a 2.9 GPA and, um, you know, not a great SAT score either, who got in, who also had recommendations from you know, particularly powerful people. Um, I, I went back and they, they conducted a, you know, over 100 page blue ribbon report into the admissions practices there. I went back and looked at that today and um, they look at all the different holds that are placed on people's applications. And a hold is basically someone important in the university is interested in this person getting in. Um, and the argument has been made that that hold means, hey, you know, we want this guy to get in. Right. And there's different kinds of holds. There's a president's hold, which got a lot of scrutiny at the time. There's also an athletics hold. And it's interesting in this whole investigation, it explicitly says, you know, we didn't actually look into the athletics holds process during this investigation. You know, it makes you wonder if they had what they would have found. Maybe they right. should. Yeah. Is there a celebrity? Celebrity's yeah. kids hold. Yep. I, I think one other thing just to mention about this is that, you know, there these people, these these parents got in trouble for bribing the university, you know, people at universities to get their kids into school. They paid money to get their kids into school. That is also somewhat of a common thing if you do it the right way. I mean, a lot of universities, if you donate a bunch of money to the right. school, <laughs> your kid's going to have a better chance of getting in, you know, and, and that's true of, that's been true at, at UT when they reviewed their admissions policies. They specifically said at a Board of Regents meeting, um, we think there should be cases where if someone has donated millions of dollars to the school, has been a great asset to the university, that we should take a closer look at that student and see whether it's worth it to, to help that student in a certain way or anything it like, like that. seems like these parents should have taken a different approach, yeah. just gone the endowment route. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Bri bribe the university in Directly. a legal way, and it's okay, <laughs> yeah. but do it behind closed doors. We should, we should note, too, just in case Don, uh, you know, Dan Cogdell is listening, Center is innocent according to his lawyers. He's claiming innocence and he's going to plead non, not guilty, right? Yeah. Absolutely. So he, uh, you know, these, these are allegations right. and, uh, you know, we'll, I'm, I'm, It'll be interesting, too, because it seemed based on the reporting that this was a very vigorous investigation that involved, yeah. like, wiretaps yeah. and mm -hmm. undercover. Totally. Uh, they had, know. like, a 300 people yeah. or something. Yeah, I mean, something. apparently, the, and the, the Yale women's soccer coach, you know, who took a $400,000 bribe, I guess, was one of the first people nabbed and wore a wire and, like, right. did this yeah. with repeated parents. So it's, I mean, this is a, it's a fascinating investigation, but probably revealing this has been going on for decades. So, 
Hopefully all of us got into college. My parents are both journalists. There's no way they could have paid anybody a bribe. <laughs> well, that's, that's my whole thing. I couldn't afford a bribe. And also, I'm just so glad that I got, as my, my kids have bitterly pointed out, that there's no way I would be accepted to UT today. <laughs> I'm always afraid they're going to come take my degree away. I mean, I think that's a really important point that kind of underscores all these admissions issues at UT in recent years is that a generation ago, UT was a very different school than it is now. And I think a lot of the problems, a lot of the frustrations that arise are parents who got in now see their kids who got higher grades than they did mm -hmm. and are just kind of dumbfounded by, by how that happened. And, and that elicits different responses and different blames. Uh, and yeah. I guess in some cases, maybe some questionable practices. Absolutely. All right. Well, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors, the Texas Hospital Association. Texas hospitals are at the forefront of reform, leading efforts to improve patient outcomes and cut costs. See Texas Hospitals Priorities for a Healthier Texas at THA.org slash 2019 legislative session. I hope all of you listeners can spell that. And Centerpoint Energy, headquartered in Houston. It's a domestic energy delivery company committed to delivering a safe and reliable supply of natural gas and electricity to Texas and beyond. Visit centerpointenergy.com. All right, Jay, you're up. And this isn't about your college admissions. Okay. Uh, you had an absolutely Good. phenomenal project land last week. Sorry we couldn't have you on the TribCast last week. Uh, the results of months of work and a collaboration between the Tribune and Time Magazine called Border Hustle, both a big written magazine piece that was beautiful and a half-hour documentary. Tell us how this project came about um, and really you know, what your Notes big findings were. Well, it came about when um, you assigned me oh, to really? uh, Families Divided, our project that focused on the separation of families at the border under the zero tolerance uh, situation. And um, basically, I ended up at one point in Livingston, Texas, in a detention facility where I was told there was a migrant that we called Carlos who was inside and had been told that if he would drop his asylum case... Um, he could, he would be deported and he would get his daughter back who had been separated from, um, and, and they would go home together. Well, that never happened. He stayed in detention and his daughter Haley, um, that is her real name, ended up in Southwest Key, uh, a facility, um, in Phoenix, Arizona. And from the very beginning, one of the things that was evident was the conditions that he was in in his detention were a, a cause of, of concern, frustration, and added desperation for him. Um, and one of the first things I noticed was that, uh, and we talked about, was he was having a hard time just communicating with his family, for one thing, because the phone calls were so high. I was like, who knew, like, landlines could be so profitable, but they are inside the private prison industry. And so... Um, Shannon Najma Badi ended up writing the story about the phone rates and uh, inside detention facilities and got me to thinking about how some of the things that happened to them inside detention, they were comparing to the same kind of shakedowns that they uh, experienced just coming here. I mean, a lot of Central Americans end up being pushed out of Central America through extortion and gang schemes where they're like, hey, you know, you got to pay the rent. They call it that la renta, where if you have a popsicle stand or whatever it is, you got to pay some of it to the gangs. And so they leave and then they got to hire a smuggler and then they got to go pay the cartel off. So there's, there's this whole shakedown aspect before they get here. So I had to do that reporting as well. And I have to tell you, Emily, when I 
I, I was so nervous when I called you to say, I want you to, I want to go to this little tiny town called La Tecnica. And I was like, there's no way she's going to say yes to this. And you were like, yep, go do it. And I, and I really think that's the best part of the movie because there's this tiny town. Carlos told me, I was like, where did you come through? How did you get through Mexico? And he said, I went to this town called La Tecnica. I was like, hmm, never heard of it. And I just kind of went into one ear and out the other. And then as we were working on this project in conjunction with time, um, I talked to other migrants. I was like, where'd you come through? Like, La Tecnica, La Tecnica. Everybody was talking about La Tecnica. I'm like, what is this? And I could not find it on a Google map. And the fact that I couldn't find somewhere that everybody was talking about just as a reporter really piqued my curiosity. And so we went there and I took Stephanie Loitert from the University of Texas, a migrant uh, expert, expert on smuggling routes. And um, it was just amazing because it's time, you know, we went down there right when the caravan thing was happening. You know, on, on our phones, we're looking at like the caravans breaking through and it wasn't too far from where we were. And I'm, I'm like, where are the news crews? Because here we're in this tiny smuggling town and there's like a caravan a week coming through here. And so I, I think that what we did with Border Hustle is we kind of pulled the curtain back a lot on the whole infrastructure. It's all about, you know, there, there are a lot of really good stories about human rights abuses and, and all of the different things that people allege happen. But we, and, and those are those are legitimate stories and I've done some of them myself, but what we focused on in Border Hustle is the money. Mm -hmm. It's about the money. And this is a multi-billion dollar industry, both on the Mexican side of the border um, in Central America, when you talk about paying coyotes and paying off the cartel, because if you don't pay the cartel, something bad's probably going to happen to you. And then once you get here and you pay U.S. truck drivers to get uh, to your destination, and then if you end up in detention, that's a whole other piece of it where it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And a lot of times the migrants end up having to work either for free or for a dollar a day. And they've gone to court and said, if we can't, if we have to actually pay people to do all of the work, the janitorial work, cleaning the toilets, cooking the food, then we wouldn't be able to actually make a profit. And to me, I mean, these folks, they know they're going to get extorted on both sides of the border. And the desperation that you have to be enduring in order to go through that, <laughs> I mean, that's what's just most astonishing. And the way that you put this sort of, this really human face on these, these this sort of extortion and the, the hustle, the shakedown on both sides of the border is really extraordinary. If you haven't watched the documentary, or read this story, you absolutely should. Jay, you also had a little breaking news this week uh, The uh, out of the CEO of Southwest Key, which is the biggest, um, uh, you know, houser of children separated from their parents. Tell us what happened there. Right. Again, this is also uh, in our story, Border Hustle. Haley ended up in this Southwest Key facility. And there is a piece of an interview there, of kind of a rare interview, actually, with Juan Sanchez, the CEO and founder of Southwest Key, um, and actually sort of plays a bit role in the story about his, his retirement because um, I had gotten a tip um, that Juan Sanchez, beyond having a $1.5 million salary, had some personal stake in one of the shelters that Southwest Key rents from. They have like 24, I think 24 or 25 shelters in three states. Um, I think it's two dozen. 
Um, and um, one of them in Conroe, there's an, this LLC, and I heard, well, he might have some kind of uh, dealing with that. So I asked him very specifically, do you have any ownership interest um, in any shelters that Southwest Key, this nonprofit that you're the CEO of, rents from? You know, have a personal stake, basically, allegedly personal, pr personally profiteering. And he said, no, I don't. Well, a couple hours later, I get uh, a call and find out he, quote, misunderstood your question, and um, he did own a stake in that. That ended up being a key finding in a New York Times story that came out later that was absolutely scathing and brutal. Um, and a couple of days, either the next day or a few days later, the New York Times announced that Southwest Key was under federal investigation uh, for alleged possible improprieties, possible um, profiteering, um, you know, personal, personally mixing sort of company and, and, and personal business. And um, so uh, Juan Sanchez this week um, announced that he is, is stepping down. He said it's time for fresh leadership. And he said that um, there's been some unfair coverage and he didn't want that to be he, his, his view of this is a, from a this, right. But his view of this is that uh, at least what he told us was that this has been unfair and it, it, it's it has distracted from the very good work that Southwest Key does. And I do think that there's a, that, you know, you should mention that, you know, they do, these kids do have to go somewhere and they end up in these shelters. So, so um, and that's his point is that he, he, you know, it was a situation with him where they, they've been in business for 30 years. They went from five employees to almost 8,000 um, and, you know, several states. Um, but, and, and the unaccompanied minors flowing across the border, which started in 2013, 2014, really raised the profile. But then you have the zero tolerance thing that happens. Families getting separated and, and the very people that supported him that were sort of the activist groups all of a sudden are like, wait a minute, you're profiteering off of this horrible policy. And then the scrutiny increased and then this New York Times story. So I think that really really inflicted some serious blows on Southwest Key. Great. Well, thank you, Jay. Uh, we've got a couple minutes left, and Patrick, I just want uh, you to weigh in quickly on uh, yet another San Antonio special election. Uh, in recent memory, they have not gone so great for Democrats. What happened last night? Yeah, so this was a special election runoff to replace former state rep uh, Justin Rodriguez, San Antonio Democrat, traditionally blue district uh, based in Bear County. Um, the Republican candidate in this race, uh, his name is uh, Fred uh, Ranheil, Rangel, um, and he uh, basically he was backed by top Texas Republicans like the governor, um, U.S. Senator John Cornyn, and they had hoped to kind of replicate the success that they had last year in Senate District 19, where they kind of caught Democrats asleep at the wheel a little bit and were able to flip a state, a traditionally Democratic uh, state Senate seat. Um, that didn't happen this time. Uh, the Democratic candidate last night, Ray Lopez, won handily uh, by uh, the high margin in the high teens. 17 percentage points, right, I think. Right, exactly. Um, these two districts were, uh, were certainly had some key differences. You know, SD19 was much more rural, obviously a bigger district as a state Senate district. Um, HD125, much more urban. HD125, much more, both these were Democratic-friendly districts, but HD125, much more Democratic in that, in that direction. Um, and also, uh, you know, there was a huge financial disparity um, in the race last night, whereas in SC19, the Democratic candidate, Republican candidate were a little more evenly matched financially. 
And also, I'll just add, you know, Democrats definitely seem to learn their lesson from SD19. And they, once their candidate in this race last night made it to the runoff, uh, they did a lot more to get on the same page, get united, get organized, and make sure that they, you know, would not face a humiliating upset again. Yep. Awesome. Thank you, folks. That's all the time we have this week. Thank, to, thank you to the Texas Association of School Boards, CompTIA, the Texas Hospital Association, and Centerpoint Energy, our sponsors this week. Extra special thanks, as always, to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Matthew, Patrick, Jay, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening.